Uh, this morning, oh, there it is. This morning, I'd like to speak with you about uh, true blessedness. Um, we're coming upon Thanksgiving and providentially the season of life in our church. Uh, the passage, Psalm 32, seems most appropriate this morning. So I'd like to direct your attention to Psalm 32 and to talk with you a little bit about uh, what it means to be uh, truly blessed or truly happy. Uh, this psalm, um, you may be very familiar with, ends on a note of a call to be glad and to rejoice and shout for joy. And uh, it gives us the pathway to getting there, to getting to a place of true joy and true gratitude and thanksgiving, uh, the only way to experience those things. Uh, so let us, um, let's pray. We'll read through the passage and talk about it a little bit. Our Father, in Jesus' name we come and we thank you for being our Father. We thank you for your devotion and covenant love towards us. Father, thank you for Jesus and for sending him, for his perfect life of obedience and for his sacrificial, substitutionary death on the cross. Father, we're thankful that he was buried he really was dead, and he took our sins to the grave with him. Father, thank you for raising him from the dead, bodily, truly, with all authority and power in his hand. Thank you for the payment that he made for our sin, and we pray that you give us grace to rejoice in him. Father, as we come uh, to you during this season in our church life, as well as this season in the end of the year, we ask that you give us grace to be thankful, to be grateful, to be prayerful, to be diligent and vigilant in our walk with you. Father, we pray as we're reminded from this passage of what it means to truly experience happiness, that you would uh, engage our hearts afresh, fill us all with your spirit, be merciful to each one of us. And we pray these things for your glory and for your praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 32, beginning at verse 1, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule 
without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. As we stated that this psalm ends on a note of being glad and rejoicing and shouting for joy because God calls us righteous and upright in heart, not because of anything we have done or anything that we are in ourselves, but because of what he has done through his son Jesus. The word blessed in verse 1 is a word that means happy. It's the Hebrew word asher, and it means happy. Oh, the happiness is of the one whose transgression is forgiven. It's the same term that's used, a comparable term used in Matthew 5 for the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And here it is the same word that says, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And transgression, of course, refers to a rebellion. Rebellion of a right authority over us. That God has a right to tell us what to do. And we rebel when we ignore that right that God has. And we turn away from that right that God has. And we dismiss it as of no consequence in our life. And we go on living as we choose. But the Bible says that we are happy when that, that aspect of our character, that rebellion has been forgiven a word that means lifted up and carried away from us, taken away from us, that rebellion, that, that attitude that says, I don't need God to tell me right from wrong or what to do. When that characteristic is lifted from us as a burden and removed from us, taken away from us, that's what brings real happiness, genuine happiness. And it goes on to say, oh, oh, oh the happiness is of the one whose sin is covered. And sin is missing the mark, that God has given us a standard by which we are to live. He has given us a way by which we are to glorify him, and uh, we, we miss that mark. We don't measure up to it. None of us do. But the Bible says that happiness comes when that reality about who we are as sinners is covered, a word that means concealed from sight, hidden from the eyesight of God. And it goes on to say, oh, the happiness is of the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And iniquity is a word that means twisted in our nature. Twisted and perverted and totally against the Lord. Oh, the happiness is of the one whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And the word count is an accounting term. It means that God does not reckon something to our account. He does not impute it to our account. He does not accuse us. He does not associate us with our twistedness and our contortedness of spirituality. And it goes on to say, oh, the happiness is of the one whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no deceit. And and what's said here is not that a person can achieve some kind of sinless perfection, but that when deception is discovered within us, the happy person is the one who does not dismiss it. 
When deception is discovered, the happy person is the one who doesn't deny it, doesn't delegate it to someone else's account, doesn't disguise it as something else, doesn't defend that deception, but owns it and says, I need work, I need change, I need help. And that can only come when there is someone who we know is Jesus. He's the one who carries our transgression away from us. He's the one whose sin cleanses and covers, his his sacrifice cleanses and covers our sin. He's the one who was considered guilty on the cross. And all of our iniquity was accounted to him and reckoned to him and not to us. So that he might transform us within from deception. It's so easy for us to put on an outward show and to pretend to be holy and to pretend to be righteous. But the Bible says happy is the one in whose spirit no one knows a man's spirit but the man and but the spirit of God but in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no hiding of sin. And this happy state is then contrasted with the unhappy state that David experienced. In verse 3, when he was silent, he says, For when I kept silent, my state was not happy. It says, My bones wasted away which talks about physical health and well-being, began to break down. His own physical health and well-being began to become broken and to become distraught. It says his bones wasted away. And there's a reason why they did. It says, through my groaning all day long. And groaning is a Hebrew word that means literally mental roaring. That a guilty conscience was eating him alive. Guilt, the stress of guilt, can disturb and can destroy a person's health. It's the reason why James, when he said, told us to confess our sins one to another, he associates the forgiveness that we receive when we confess our sins with actual physical healing. And of course, it does not mean that everyone who's sick has sinned, but it does mean that when we sin, it can often lead to sickness. It can often lead to a disturbing of our well-being. And when he kept silent, silent is not golden in this case. When he kept silent, his bones wasted away, his conscience kept him up. His guilt broke him down. And the reason why it happened that way, in verse 4 it says, for day and night your hand, God's hand, was heavy upon him. And God's heavy hand of discipline, we read responsibly today how discipline comes and it's not pleasant but it is painful And it's meant to be painful. That God administers the pain of discipline 
because he wants to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace through that. God does not want us going on believing that everything's okay when we have walked away from him. When we have turned away from him, it's not okay. We're in a difficult situation, spiritually, mentally, physically, and so God applies his heavy hand, and it says that his strength, literally, my moisture was turned to the heat of summer that he became like a drought. If you've ever seen in places like Africa or other places where there is often this season without rain and how the rivers dry up and become like a drought. He said that's what happened to his strength. His vitality was gone. His energy was gone because God's heavy hand wouldn't give him peace till he made it right. And God has a has an aim, he has a goal. He's not out to beat people up. He's not out to destroy people. He's out to bring people to the end of themselves. Just like the prodigal son who found himself in a pigsty, longing to eat the pig's food. Nobody would give him anything. And it was at that point that he finally got the message that there's plenty of food in my father's house. There's plenty of room in my Father's house. We should contemplate these realities when God disciplines us. We should recognize that in the, in the church, that no one ever receives discipline in the church because they sin. If that were the case, nobody would be here. But discipline comes in the church when, when after pleading and, and seeking and running after, there is a rejection of the counsel. There's a rejection of the call to turn back to God. And that's when discipline comes. That's the only time it comes. And it is the pathway from God for restoration. That is the purpose of discipline, is to restore someone. Not to shun, not to shame, but to restore. To get folks praying for that individual. God's hand of discipline led to verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin. The heavy hand of God has a purpose. The drought has a purpose. My bones wasting away have a purpose. The guilty conscience has a purpose that God is upon and running after that person. When Adam and Eve got driven out of the garden, God ran after them. We never intend to ever see anyone disciplined without running after them. God runs after them so that there might be an acknowledgement of sin. And so the psalmist said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, in verse 13, it says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them 
will obtain mercy. In Proverbs 29, it says in verse 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. God's objective in bringing discipline by his own hand and through the instrumentality of the church is is meant to bring people to the end of themselves in acknowledgement of sin, uncovering iniquity, confessing transgressions to the Lord. And the Hebrew there is very emphatic. It says in the English, I said I will confess. In the Hebrew it says, I said I, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. There's ownership there. And the immediate response of God is, He forgave the iniquity of my sin. He, he confessed His transgressions. Notice the language to the Lord. He confessed it to the Lord, the God of the covenant, the God who's merciful, the God who's gracious, the God who's slow to become angry, the God who is faithful in His covenant and faithful in His goodness, the God who forgives transgression and wickedness and sin, but the God who will by no means clear the guilty. It is that God, that Lord, that He confessed His sins with, and the response was an immediate wiping out of iniquity, an immediate forgiveness of perversion and sin. And so, verse 6, the counsel comes to us, therefore let everyone who is godly. And this became the psalmist's prayer. His prayer turned at this point. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. It's the psalmist's counsel to us. It's the psalmist's counsel in in praying to God Oh Lord, let everyone who is godly offer prayer. It's a call to each one in this room to offer prayer for our dear brother, to offer prayer in the midst of the struggle, offer prayer that you may be found in the time when it's favorable. The Apostle Paul said that now is the time of God's favor when God listens to confessions of sin. Now is the time of salvation when God hears and helps those who turn back to Him. It is important for the people of God to pray for those who have gone astray, that they might hear, that they might listen, that they might hear the call of God and respond to the discipline of the Lord and cry out to Him. Because when prayer is offered... God will answer. Notice what else what it says in verse 6. It says, when offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And the rush of great waters is it's figurative language of, of a coming judgment, of a judgment that we all must stand before one day. And when that judgment comes, they will not reach this person who has cried out to God in prayer. There is no condemnation for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and who have responded to His grace and His his cross. 
that if we are able to stand before God face to face when judgment comes, if we're able to stand on that day, we can stand on any day. There's no day in our life that we can't deal with if we can stand face to face before God Almighty. That is the most terrifying place on earth, in heaven, in the universe, to stand is face to face with a consuming fire. And if we are able to stand face to face with the consuming fire, and the rush of many waters don't reach us, then we're able to stand any day of the week. We have to know that we have to be able to pray for the godly, to offer prayer to God in a time so that when the rush of judgment comes, they're able to stand. And they're able to stand because their transgression has been shouldered by Jesus and carried to the cross because their sin has been cleansed and covered by his blood, and their iniquity has been counted to Jesus, and he's been struck dead on our behalf. We need to pray for those who have gone astray that they might be able to stand when the rush of waters come. When God judges who can stand, None but the righteous. None but the washed. We have to be able to stand. And only Jesus can help us to stand. And so the psalmist says, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. He's the only one who can do so. He can hide us in the cleft of the rock. He can hide us in the hollow of his hand. And enable us to stand when all the judgment comes our way. Jesus stands up and says, this one is mine. Look at my hands. These marks are for them. They've been snatched from the fire. Is that true of you? Have you been snatched from the fire? Have you been rescued by the blood? Have you been clothed in the righteousness? We've got to die one day. We've got to stand one day. We've got to meet God one day. What's he going to say? Well done? But depart from me. You've got to make it right. Have you made it right with him? The Bible says not only is he a hiding place, not only does he preserve us from trouble, but he surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. That's what the household of faith is supposed to be and meant to be. That's what the church is meant to be, is people surrounding us with shouts of deliverance. We hear testimonies of those who have been washed, who have been delivered, who have been rescued, who have been brought into the family of God. That's 
what keeps us on this journey. Exhort one another every day. While it is called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ Jesus if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Then we have this glorious promise, not only of a God who carries our transgression away and cleanses and covers our sin and takes the wrath of God on our behalf, but he says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And how does he do it? He does it in the context of the community of faith gathering together, hearing the word of God preached. He does it in small groups. He does it in time spent in the word of God with the people of God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. God is a good father not only to apply the heavy hand of discipline, but he's a good father having brought us back to himself that he now takes us and instructs us and teaches us the way we should go, the right way to travel. And he says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God is a wonderful counselor. And, and, and the language here is very specific. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God doesn't just give us some 10-step book, some 12-step approach. God gives us specific, tailor-made counsel, specific to our case, specific to our difficulty, specific to our challenges, when we spend time in the Word, when we spend time under the preaching of the Word, when we spend time gathered together with God's people, listening and hearing the Word, God specifically counsels us with His eye on us. He's looking at our situation, at our challenges, at our sufferings, at our difficulties, and He applies the Scripture specifically to our situation. That's His promise. We need to engage with God around the word of Scripture and say, God, I'm looking for that specific counsel for my situation. We should long for it. We should pray for it. We should look for it. He promised it. He's going to deliver it. He always keeps his promises. He cannot lie. And he calls us to come to the Scripture and receive the instruction, the specific instruction geared for our circumstances. And then he gives in verse 9 a warning. Contrasting with verse 8, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed by bit and bridle or they will not stay near you. You can run a horse right off a cliff and he'll be none the wiser until he hits the ground. And a mule is a stubborn animal no matter how hard you try to pull and how much you try to beat, if the mule is going to sit, it's not going to move. I can recall when I was a child, when I was stubborn, my father often called me a word that begins with J and ends with S. And I, I won't humor you with the term today, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. God says, be not like a horse. 
or a mule because they don't have understanding. And understanding is a word that means the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, and not simply the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, but the character to choose what's right. And we get that understanding from being instructed. We get that understanding from being taught. We get that understanding from being counseled specifically in terms of what God has said. And the whole reason for the bit and the bridle of the horse is to apply discomfort to the mouth of the horse so that it will go the direction that we want it to go. If you tell your horse, well, I want you to turn right here, it probably won't listen to you, but if you pull on it and it gets that bit in its mouth, it'll go right. And the point here that God brings up this particular, these particular animals is that, is that God does not want us to have to, God does not want to move us. He does not want to motivate us. He does not want to, us to get, he does not want to get us to do what he wants to, us to do by applying pain to us. That God should not have to apply a pattern pain to us. That should not be the pattern of God's relationship with us, that he has to, he has to inflict us, he has to beat us, he has to whip us to finally get us to do what he wants us to do. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the patience of Christ should be enough motivation to move us. We love because he first loved us. We don't love out of fear. We love because he loves us. There is a healthy fear of God. We talked about it last week in Sunday school. There is a, a healthy trepidation. Moses, it said of him that in the presence of God, he was trembling with fear because of the awesomeness of God's presence, because of the awesomeness of who God was. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, he moves us and he desires to move us into action by his grace and by his mercy, by his love, by his covenant devotion and steadfast love. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that compels me and constrains me to no longer live for myself but for the one who died and was raised again. And that should be the same thing that moves us. Be not like a horse. Be not like a mule. Without understanding, it must be curbed. It must be kept near by inflicting discomfort, by inflicting pain. But be near because... Because God has come near. Because God has so loved and so bestowed His grace and His mercy upon us, draw near to Him. Because God Himself has humbled Himself in the person of Jesus Christ to gather us. Jesus Christ stood before the crucifixion. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks around but Jerusalem was not willing, and so the house was left destitute. Jesus walked out of the temple and left it. Jesus longs to gather us. Many are the sorrows, it says in verse 10, of the wicked. Jonah learned this when he was in the belly of the whale. He said that, People who turn away to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's what the psalmist said earlier in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But here the image is even stronger. The steadfast love surrounds the one, not just follows them, but surrounds them who trust in the Lord. And that is the key, is it not? That Abraham didn't get saved because Abraham was such a good boy. Joseph didn't get redeemed because he was such a wonderful person. And that you and I didn't come by this happy state because we perfectly behaved ourselves. But there is a trust, there is a faith that God created within us under the preaching of the gospel that God created faith in the heart of you and enabled you to fixate on Jesus and lay hold of Jesus and collapse on Jesus and run to Jesus. And it's because of trust in Jesus that you have reason to be glad. It says, be glad in the Lord. It is the, the comparable verses in Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. What kind of Lord did Paul call the Philippians to joy in? But it was the one who, who counted us more significant than he counted himself and sought what was our best interest and not simply his own. But he came in the form of a servant. He took on human flesh. And he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death on a cross. He loaded up our guilt and our sin upon himself. And he stretched his hands and said, put the wrath on me, put the condemnation on me, and let them go free. And God looked and saw the blood of his son and didn't pass him over, but struck him dead. He passed over all of you. So we have reason to be glad in this Lord who's merciful and gracious and rejoice because by that sacrifice He calls you righteous. Not because of anything within us, but He calls us righteous because His Son is righteous. And when He hung on the cross, He took the righteousness of Jesus and put it on you and took your sin and put it on His Son and struck Him dead and set you free. You've got reason to shout for joy, as it says. Because he's made you upright in heart. It's not cheap grace. He's made you upright in heart. He took out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and made you brand new. How much more we should rejoice and how much more we should, like verse 6 says, Therefore, let the godly pray for those who have gone astray from this grace, from this reason for thanksgiving, this reason to rejoice. Every heart and mind be in prayer, in fervent, reverent prayer, so that those who have gone astray can come back home and stay with their Father, come to the dance, 
That's what the prodigal's father said to the older brother. Come to the dance. He was lost. He's found. He was dead. He's alive. Come to the dance. Rejoice. Then leave the dance with the music in your heart and the melody in your voice and call back others to come to the dance and rejoice over this one, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was laid low so that we might be raised high. Our Father, in Christ's name, we come and we give thanks to you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your fatherly heart runs after your children. Your heart that leaves the 99 because there's one missing from the flock. Father, again, we cannot help but again pray for our dear brother to return to you, to return to us, to return to his home, to his dear wife. Be gracious and merciful to us, dear God, truly experience the only happiness there is by knowing Jesus, our sins forgiven, and you treating us and seeing us just as righteous and just as sinless, Christ. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen.